This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's another episode of the Equalizer podcast as we come inside two weeks until the return of the NWSL and something called the NWSL Challenge Cup. Details are still kind of scant on exactly what that's going to look like, although we do know the preliminary round the preliminary round matchups. My name is Dan Laletta. I've got John Halloran and Rachel Krigger with me today on the podcast. And we're going to start with Rachel, who we haven't heard from on the pod in a while, but I might expect that we'll be hearing from her a little bit more often. But Rachel, we haven't heard from you since uh, the world went into lockdown, since NWSL shut down, and since they came back with the Challenge Cup. So uh, just give us some thoughts. Less than two weeks out, excited, um, you know, skeptically excited. What are your thoughts on this return to place idea for the Women's Soccer League? I think that there's a lot of questions and, and first off, thanks for having me back on. It's good to hear you guys again. Um, but I think that there's a lot of questions. So I, I think skeptically optimistic is definitely a, a nice and good way to put it, but it is good to have sports back. It's good to watch um, domestic soccer in, in our country and, and not having to resort to watch solely European soccer, although that's a great product too. Um, I'm excited for the tournament in regard to just like it feels like everything's new almost like teams have changed so much this past offseason and um, you know there's eight teams that are going to go into that playoff spot and I think in previous years it was like oh well I think we all know who that bottom team is going to be on the table but I think this year it's it's a total a wild card so to say uh, I think everybody is different Everyone's new. There are teams that have retained more players than some. There are some teams that are looking to, you know, fill holes. But I'm I'm excited for it. I'm I'm really intrigued to see new players like Shirley Cruz, uh, Keely Ohiwa with uh, with Chicago, and I'm just excited for all of it. And I I'm really intrigued to see if the courage will go for I guess. This isn't the we don't know if this is the whole NWSL season, but a three-peat of sorts, um, adding another trophy to their to their trophy case. Now, what we've talked about so far since we started this is that the courage, you know, everyone wants to know who's gonna play right back, but everything else on the courage seems to be pretty much status quo. It seems like all the US players will be there and will play, but every other team is in some sort of transition. You just mentioned the Red Stars, who are still going to be very good or should be very good, but they lost almost 50% of their goal scoring, and they replaced it with a lot of players that are kind of speculative. We know they are capable of scoring, but they're not as much of a given as the player 
that they lost. You know, Orlando and Sky Blue redid their teams, but they probably require more than four games or seven games to really figure it out. So who's who are you most excited to watch, taking the courage out of the equation, if that would be your answer? From a team perspective, I would probably say Sky Blue just because of all the pieces that they've added, um, the the work around the club, both off and on the field. I'm excited to see the product that they're able to put on. I think, um, you know, losing Rocky Rodriguez and having her go to Portland definitely is going to hurt. But having someone like Mitch Purse come into the team, McCall Zerboni, uh, I think those are really great additions. I think it's going to make the team better. And I, I think especially with McCall, that's someone that isn't just a really, really good soccer player, but she's a veteran and she brings that leadership and that um, that experience to the team. So and that's a team that needs experience because there are some younger players there. So I'm excited to see Sky Blue and see what kind of product they're going to put out and and kind of change the tune of their club. You know, everyone harped on them for the past couple of years because in all fairness, they didn't really have the results to to get up the table and fight for a playoff spot and whatnot. So I think that they're going to be a really fun team to watch. It's going to be interesting to see what they do, how Freya Coombe kind of fits these new players into the puzzle. But uh, I, I heard you guys talking a couple of weeks ago about how some of these like new teams with um with new players might have a couple matches of kind of figuring things out and everything you know training was halted and that that doesn't just uh, halt the physical aspect but you need to build those relationships on the field as well so I'm excited to see how long it it takes or how quickly Sky Blue can kind of get everything together and get out on the field and and produce goals and and clean sheets and maybe victories. Yeah, I think Serboni is important, not only because of the veteran leadership and one of the more popular players around, but I just think the way she plays could help just give Sky Blue maybe that little extra bite because they, they've been, I think, a soft team over the last couple of years. And if they can, you know, if Carly Lloyd is there and she can score a little bit and Serboni can get things in the back, organized and a little bit tighter, and I think their schedule is that they got is is pretty favorable, whereas Orlando is on the flip side. Their schedule is absolutely brutal. Uh, but let's bring John in here. John, we got two players that we know won't be available. Megan Rapino, who I think we mentioned briefly last week, and now Kristen Press in Utah. I have completely different opinion. And we're, you know, I think we're all in agreement that anybody that decides not to play, we're going to let them you know, take whatever their decision, whatever their reasoning is, this is not a time, I think, to criticize players for not playing. But I, I have a completely different viewpoint about what each of these two players' absences mean, but I'm curious to hear your opinion first. Well, I think Utah is definitely the one that's going to be harder done by uh, of those two teams because I think press is just so fundamental uh, to their attack. Plus, we know that She's one of only a handful of players in the league who can turn a game on its head. Uh, there's not a lot of players who can take a ball from midfield, drive through an entire defense and score. You know what I mean? Like Utah could be completely dominated in a game and still win with a player like Press. I think that becomes a lot more difficult. And that's no disrespect to Amy Rodriguez because she's obviously a fantastic player as well. But Press is 
not only a world-class player, but she's in her prime right now. The last 12 to 18 months for her has been the best I think she's probably ever played. Uh, whereas when you look at O.L. Reign, they have so much talent all over the field that they might not miss uh, Rapino as much as Utah is going to miss Press. I also look at Rapino there, kind of like Mal Pugh in Washington, who got traded in that Rapino barely played for the Reign last year, and they still made the playoffs. That's not to say they wouldn't be better if she was there, but I don't necessarily feel like they're losing her, in, at least in terms of last year to this year. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly not in, in terms of what we've seen uh, over the span of a season like last year. In a shorter tournament, though, obviously, you know, we saw last summer that, that Pino can be uh, a, a pretty incredible influence. I also think, going back to Utah, because I agree with you about press, is that maybe they go back to what Kansas City used to do with Amy Rodriguez when they played that 4-2-3-1 to devastating effect, and Rodriguez was the target player for those two championship seasons. Uh, and I, maybe I haven't even examined Utah's roster enough, but I wonder if Amy Rodriguez could in some ways actually be more effective without Kristen Press if the formation is adjusted to take advantage of her strengths. And again, I don't even know if she's good enough at this point to play that many games in a row. But at the same time, you only need three or four points early to get into the knockout phase when, quote unquote, anything can happen and there's no such thing as home field advantage. Yeah, and I think you really got to see, like, can she get the service too? Like, do they figure out right. a way to, to get Vero in a position to get her the ball? Because the other addition that uh, I think a lot of us were expecting to see was Jennifer Morrison. And, and that doesn't look like that's going to happen at least this year now. So, uh, and then what do they do with O'Hara assuming that she plays, uh, are they going to play her at left back? Are they going to play her on the wing? There's some, some questions there too. Um, and obviously the big question for Utah is the defense with the loss of Sauerbrunn. Yeah, don't you kind of have to play O'Hara back there just for that reason alone? Maybe, I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I've said this over and over and over what Utah lost last season. I don't think, you know, other than Sauerbrunn, you don't look at any of those eight or nine players they lost and say, wow, that's going to completely kill them. But I think there's a totality uh, in terms of adding up all of these small losses, whether it was, you know, Moros and Laddish and um, Tim Rack and, you just start adding up Stengel, all of these players that they lost uh, due to retirement or trades, and there's no way that it doesn't have an impact. Right, and they didn't get a lot back in those trades in terms of immediate dividends, and maybe that was all geared toward the Marajan signing. But as you said, that didn't happen, likely pandemic-related, but one way or another, she's not there. Uh, Rachel, what do you think? Anything that uh, you want to contradict us on with Rapino and Press not being around? No, not too much. I think, uh, Dan, you really hit it. Uh, I was going to say the same thing about Rapino not really playing a lot last year, and they still made the playoffs, and they're getting a ton of players back that were injured a lot of last season. I mean, Vladko Andonovsky took a team that was half injured and took it to the playoffs. So with a full team, now I think that O.L. Reign could really make some noise. And I don't think that losing Megan Rapino, I mean, she's obviously a voice. She's obviously a veteran, and she is a very well-proven soccer player, but I don't think that her absence is going to be extremely detrimental to that team. And, and for Utah, I think 
I agree with you guys. I think you need to play Kelly O'Hara in the back because of losing Becky Sauerbrunn. I think that, you know, the more veteran presence you get in the back, the better. So I'm I'm intrigued to see what that defense looks like because I don't think there's a better leader in terms of maybe not veteran status, but I guess just experience um, than I think Becky Sauerbrunn in, in the NWSL. All that said, by the way, I'm very skeptical about the rain this season. That was even before it was a short tournament, um, but we'll see what happens. They do have certainly a lot of talent. Let's hit some questions. We'll get to the questions that are specific to the NWSL. Rainmaster, any any word, I think that's supposed to be on which refs will do the tournament. How many total will they be in the village the whole month? I think a lot have other jobs are wondering how they are managing it. Ironically enough, I've got a story coming out in the next day or two about uh, the referees who will all work for the professional referees organization. Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but they will have, I want to say, 30 total officials there with uh, center referees and assistant referees. But don't quote me on that till you read my story. Uh, they will all be in Utah. They won't be in the same place as the players, but they'll have kind of their own setup. And what's interesting was that uh, not everybody who was asked decided to go for various reasons, but it's actually easier for them to spend the whole time in Utah because so many businesses now are working remotely. So working remotely, uh, they can actually do their jobs like they do when they're at home and then fly out for the weekend, but they will all be in Utah the entire time and they'll pair down for the knockout rounds in the semis and the finals. John Forsyth, with so few games before the knockout round, I'm wondering about the Challenge Cup's rules for points, tiebreakers in terms of tournament seating. Have you seen these rules yet? And if you have, can you let us know uh, what they are? Uh, John, first of all, uh, we don't necessarily see these things and not let you know what they are. But um, and I'll go to John Halloran now. Uh, we have no idea, do we? <laughs> Yeah, we don't know about tiebreakers. We don't know. I think we still have not gotten an answer on whether there's any sort of extra time in the group stage. Um, nope, I I'm asked not... that question, didn't get an answer. Okay, and uh, as, as Rachel mentioned before we got on air, we don't have game times yet. And I don't know if we know completely about how everything is going to be seeded in the knockout round, although I did see somewhere that they were going to reseed it once they get to the semifinal round. Okay, because Rain Met Master jumped back in with any idea how they'll seed it one through eight, two, you know, one v eight, two v seven, et cetera, or something else. I can't think of a logical reason why you wouldn't do it that way. Yeah, but I don't know draw. why you. Reseed. I'm not a big fan of the reseed at the semifinal round. I'm not um, I feel like that's a way of punishing teams who maybe pulled off an upset. Yeah, I agree. I don't like it. That I mean, luck of the draw is an expression for a reason, right? Yeah, you want to get through, like you got to play through your path. Like that, it is what it is. Uh, Doctor Booty MD. The stat I read: the WSL refs got it right 98.5% of the time. Is there a stat for? And WSL refs, uh, I didn't see that stat, not exactly sure where it came from or what it means that they got it right. But I can assure you that NWSL refs, whether you think they're good, whether you think they're horrible, they are judged on every single call that they make. And they are absolutely always trying to get better. That's all I'll say about that. 
Uh, let's see. One other one from Godwin O'Coley with all the information that you currently have about the NWSL team rosters, expansion, and the way the league works. What team do you feel ends up with Katarina Macario? Um, and then something about the thorns here. That's uh, that's kind of a loaded question. I think there's a long way to go before we figure that out. John, I don't know if I know you occasionally <laughs> have a little insight on 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 these younger players, um, but I Louisville, I mean, it, yeah, maybe or <laughs> I, I don't know or expansion team X that may or may not be ready to ready to be unveiled. Let's say Sacramento before they have a team. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Rachel, reseed or no reseed? What do you say? What do you like? I'm gonna go with no reseed. I, I think the phrase "luck of the draw" pretty much sums it up well. And no reseed for me. Yeah, I mean, I get it that it's easier to do it now because everybody is in the same place. But you know, and I don't, I'm one that thought, you know I don't care if you get a weird final. I mean, the last two years we've had theoretically the top two teams in the league in the final, right? And they've both been massive blowouts, right? Seven goals for the Courage, none for the Thorns or the Red Stars. So I don't, you know, I don't think it's a big deal if you get a final that looks a little bit unusual. All right, let's uh, step aside. We'll come back. U.S. Soccer did an about-face on their policy that players and staff must stand during the National Anthem. We'll talk a little bit about that and a little bit about anything else going on in the world of women's soccer. This is the Equalizer Podcast. Hey, everybody. Jeff Kasouf here, founder of The Equalizer. Thank you for listening to The Equalizer podcast. Wanted to let you know that we also have another podcast that I host called Kicking Back. Kicking Back is a one-on-one style interview type podcast where we talk to players and coaches from the women's game and get to know them a little bit better and talk about some of the moments that define their careers. So after you're done listening to this podcast, which please finish this one first, Head over, check out Kicking Back. Make sure you don't miss it. We've got interviews with some of the top personalities in the game right now and many names that you know from previous years in women's soccer and many more interviews to come. So check us out on any platform. The one you're listening to right now also has Kicking Back. And we'll get you back to the Equalizer podcast now. Back on the Equalizer podcast, where if you're not familiar with our online work, please check us out on the web at EqualizerSoccer.com. And for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. And we'll have some good stuff heading your way as we get closer to the NWSL Challenge Cup. And then, oh my goodness, we'll actually have soccer games to watch uh, and review, and that is EqualizerSoccer.com. Also, please don't forget, if you like what you hear, to rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. Uh, my name is Dan. I'm with John Halloran and Rachel Krigger. And Rachel, quick question for you before we head to the uh, U.S. soccer stuff. Um, I get the sense that you watch a pretty good bit of uh, morning European soccer, yes? I do, I do. How are you finding the no fans? Because I have a theory that it's going to get old pretty quickly for sports fans in general. It's definitely different. Um, I think, I don't know if this is unpopular or not, but I think the pumped in crowd noise is kind of weird when there's no people there. I mean, my club is Borussia Mönchengladbach, and they're the ones that have the cardboard fans, which is also (laughs) kind of strange. So, um, but I think like the pumped in noise is weird when you know nobody is there, but at the same time, 
these guys are saying stuff in German. And so it's not really important to me to hear the players on the field because I don't know what they're saying. Um, I miss fans and I wish that there could be fans, but alas, the world is saying no. Um, but it, I don't know. I think the pumped in noise is strange when you know that literally nobody is there. Do you guys remember the Thorns game when they lost the crowd mic and they had like a generic, very monotone sort of fan noise? And like people were unsure if it was really it, but then the Thorns scored and the noise just stayed completely monotone. I feel like I know what you're talking about. <laughs> So I don't know. I, 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 you know what? I, I get it. The fan noise makes it more interesting, but I, I want to hear what's going on. If there's fans, I want to hear them. If there's not fans, then I want to hear that there's not fans. I just have a theory that, you know, if we head toward the fall and we're watching, you know, baseball, basketball, football, soccer, all these sports, and there's no fans, it's, I think we're going to realize it's not exactly the same thing. I think fans in the stands are a lot more part of the experience, even on TV, than most of us realize. All right, U.S. soccer. Um, rolled back their policy that went into place in early 2017 that requires personnel of both the U.S. team and any visiting teams to stand during the national anthem. Now, obviously, that's just one of many things that has changed dramatically here in the last three weeks uh, since the George Floyd death in Minneapolis. Um, Rachel, since you're getting your feet wet here, I'm going to throw you right into the deep end. Was this a change of heart, a, you know, acquiescing to the current political climate, or does it have to do with the Cindy Cohen leadership? I think it was, oh, that's a good question. I, I want to say it has to do with the the political climate. I think that it would have been um, I think it was more about saving face and and not wanting to look bad in the sports realm. And I, I still think it's it's interesting because it is the U.S. national team. So it's like United States is, is in the name and everything. It's not like you're an NFL team like, you know, the Steelers or something. But it's still these players have a right to express themselves and they have a right to exert their First Amendment rights. And I think that the call to repeal the the law, the rule shouldn't have been passed in the first place. And the call to repeal it and bring it back, it was definitely about saving face. I don't think it's too much of a um, pat on the back for Cindy Parlo Cohn. I think it was something that they had to do or they were going to really go under. John, what do you think? I think it's fair to look at what they did this past week with some skepticism. I think that we've all seen the ground shift, whether that's the NFL coming out and, and reversing their position, whether that's NASCAR's statements on the Confederate flag, whether that's, you know, what we saw out of Drew Brees or Carly Lloyd. Um, it's, it's pretty clear that we are in a, in a period where the thoughts uh, on all of this is shifting. But at the same time, while I feel that it's fair to be a bit skeptical, I also think it's important to recognize that they did repeal the policy and that Cindy Cohn did apologize and specifically um, to the, the country's black fans and people that they felt were um, 
left out or alienated by the previous policy. I think that U.S. soccer has very rightly struggled with their fan base over the past couple of years, whether that's the failures of the men's teams, the uh, interference in the youth game, whether that's the arguments that we saw in the lawsuit, which I think most of us felt were pretty disgusting arguments to be made in a case against your own women's team. But I, I think it's important that one of the things that we do in this moment is normalize the idea that we can admit that we were wrong about things. So, and again, maybe this is not from the heart from U.S. soccer, uh, but I can tell you that, you know, personally, when this protest began and this protest began in, in Chicago, when uh, at least uh, from Megan Rapino, obviously yep. she was doing it, uh, as she said, as a nod to Colin Kaepernick, who had started that protest uh, that fall in the NFL. But you know, when when Rapino did this, what she said was very moderate. If you look back on it, it was that, you know, she said as a gay American, she felt like there were times when the flag and the country didn't fully support her and that she felt it was important, you know, to be an ally in that fight. But very clearly there was a backlash to that, not only against Rapino and Kaepernick, but in the country, it, it obviously and very clearly went into the political realm of things, too. And it in the short term, those protests probably did not help the cause because of that backlash. And people were very upset and people said that, you know, she was disrespecting the flag or they were disrespecting veterans. But in retrospect, if we can look at this now, you know, four or five years down the line, it's also important for us to recognize that that first step was necessary to put us in a place to have this conversation now and take further steps. And so, you know, I think in retrospect, we have to give a nod to Rapino for having the courage to do that, because obviously she faced a lot of vitriol for what she did. Um, and honestly, if we look at where her career was in the fall of 2016, it would have been very easy for U.S. soccer to just stop using her as a player, right? She was coming off an ACL injury. She did not have a good Olympic. She had had a calf injury and then I think maybe either a groin or a hamstring injury. U.S. soccer could have just cut ties right there and probably, you know, would not have really had to look back at that point. But she took that stand when her career was not necessarily on sound footing. And so I think when we look back on that, we need to take a second and, and recognize the courage uh, that it took for her to be an ally in that fight and, um, and, and take on that role. Because an, an, another thing, and I know I'm going long here, but one of the things that's always bothered me about the way people have looked at Megan Rapinoe is that they have an emotional reaction to her speaking out. And very rarely do people actually look at the words that she's using when she expresses her opinion, because she is very careful about what she says, and she expresses her viewpoint much more clearly than I think even professional politicians do. And there is a nuance to the way that she is speaking and a wisdom to the, the words that she is using that I think we don't see that often in any sort of, of political debate. And even what she was saying in press conferences in France, uh, in interviews from that time and even before and since, 
she is somebody who has clearly put a lot of thought into what she wants to say. And uh, I think she expresses herself very eloquently. Very well said yourself there. Um, yeah, I think it's worth noting that Rapino was one of, if not the only white athletes to take an independent position during the Kaepernick kneeling thing. And I don't mean, you know, teammates of black NFL players that either, I don't know if any of them knelt, but a lot of them stood behind kneeling players with their hands on their shoulders. And, you know, Rapino did that all on her own. And I think you're right. I think, I think she deserves an awful lot of credit for that. And I would have to imagine that that version of Megan Rapino kind of uh, laid the foundation for the 2019 World Cup uh, let me dominate the world stage with my feet and my voice, yeah. uh, Megan Rapino, which as everybody who has listened to me knows, I think is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in, in sports. But, you know, I can also tell you that I think you're right about the way Megan Rapino phrases the things that she said, because as a person that is in all of the privileged classes myself, um, I am never, I never find myself um, feeling like Megan Rapino is speaking down to me. And I feel like uh, that's a balance we all need to strike. You know, we all want, or maybe we don't all want it, but, you know, hopefully most of us want, you know, everybody to be treated the same way. But I don't always feel like some of the arguments about the social justice matters, you know, reflect that. But I feel like whenever Megan Rapino speaks, I want to get in line behind her. And I don't always feel that way when other um, you know, athletes or celebrities or whoever just, you know, speak about that. So, um, yeah. Now, getting back to the skepticism element, though, it, do we think, you know, like you said, John, that, you know, we could be skeptical about it, but the first thing you have to do is the right thing. And now yeah. it'll matter what happens in six months or a year, you know, if this conversation dies down a little bit. But do we think that they took this stand in part because they know that they can't stop it at this point, that probably... 50% of the players, if not more, might take a knee regardless. So, you know, in the absence of stopping it, allow it. Well, I think they've taken a massive amount of, of grief and, and a lot of it is very well deserved. Like I said, you know, I referenced the equal pay fight, like the arguments that they made in that lawsuit were pretty sickening. And I think, you know, look, public opinion on this has shifted by close to 20 points, which is absolutely remarkable. We live in an incredibly polarized society. And to think that people's viewpoints on any issue could shift 20 points over a four year period is incredible. So, you know, again, it's fair to look at this that any whether this is, you know, your bank coming out with a statement, whether this is any sort of, you know, corporate branding coming out with with a statement. Um, I think it's fair to look at all of them with a bit of skepticism, especially, you know, U.S. soccer, which has certainly um, engendered a, a fair amount of bad faith with their fan base. Um, and I know anybody who follows, you know, the men's side of things, particularly, there's always been that historical criticism of U.S. soccer for underutilizing the Latino community in terms of scouting and using that talent. Um, not that that isn't also there on the women's side, but U.S. soccer doesn't necessarily have the best record on these types of issues. And I do believe that they either abolished or stopped meeting with their diversity committee um, a couple of years ago as well. 
Yeah, I think what's going to be an interesting tipping point for sports will be when the NFL season begins. I don't want to get too far off the rails, but, you know, you said the NFL changed course. Well, the commissioner did. But as far as I know, no owners have really spoken about it. A couple of coaches have, but owners haven't made their positions clear yet. And I think that unless the NFL doesn't play, which I'll be shocked if that happens, they're going to be back in September. That'll be before either the men or the women play again in U.S. soccer. And that's the league that all eyes will be on. And there will be players kneeling. There'll be a lot of players kneeling, possibly some coaches. And it'll be really interesting to see. And I think we should be in a position where we've calmed down a little bit at that time from where we are right now. So it'll be very fascinating to see how ownership reacts to that. You know, And it's also, it's pretty clear that the general fan base of the NFL was not pleased in 2016-17 when players were taking knees. It's completely baffling to me that you could decide whether or not you're going to watch a sports league based on that, but there were financial ramifications as part of the reason that owners didn't want this to go on. Well, we should mention, too, then, that the uh, the then Washington Spirit owner also played the anthem while the teams were in the locker room, so he was clearly not in favor of, of that anthem protest uh, in the league yes. that we cover. Correct. That's with, that was when Megan Rapino was there. Um, and I will say that might be the one time I thought Megan Rapino maybe spoke out of turn, but we don't have to um, get into a big debate about that at the moment. Um, we did have uh, one other. Oh, I also just want to say I do think Rachel makes an interesting point about the fact that the U.S. national team uh, is in theory a representative of the United States, and they actually do wear the flag on their uniform. I do think that makes it a little bit different how you maybe handle the national anthem as opposed to a, um, you know, a, a professional sports team. I, at this point, I think that difference is probably negligible, but I do think it's a fair point. All right, there was one more question that I missed before from Stephen. Been some articles about the amount of money the MLS, EPL, and U.S. soccer will lose. How much is the NWSL expected to lose? And is there any concern of them surviving or at least regressing in any way? John, you want to dive into this one too? Uh, okay, you don't have to. Um, I, look, I think in some ways the NWSL is on better footing because there's not as much revenue. But they're also not teams that are owned by filthy rich billionaires. So, you know, it's six of one half dozen of the other. I don't think we're going to know the answer. Uh, supposedly, the sponsors involved in the Challenge Cup are going to make it worth their while. But, yeah, look, I don't think I don't think any business goes through what we've gone through in the last three months and who knows how much longer, you know, and just dust themselves off and, and picks up where they left off. I think every industry pretty much is going to have to figure out how to come out the other side of this and the ones who figure it out best will be the ones who thrive and the ones who think they can just come out of it are going to struggle more well there's going to be an effect uh, a latent effect into 2021 as well because obviously this disease isn't going anywhere and with people being laid off they're going to have less disposable income which of course is going to mean less jerseys purchased less tickets purchased etc Absolutely. Rachel, are you still with us? Yeah, don't say that, John. I just bought a I just got laid <laughs> off and I just bought a Costa Rican national team jersey that I didn't even need. So <laughs> uh, it's a, some it's people fair... are smart with their money. Some people are like me. 
It's a, it's a fair point, though. And, you know, what I was saying back when the schedule was delayed and the WNBA schedule was out and the league started, it's like a month and a half later. You know, if you're living in Washington and you're looking to spend some money on women's sports and you've got a mystic schedule but not a spirit schedule, spirit might miss out because of that. So I think the NWSL needs to, you know, and this is not new, but they need to get that figured out. Even right now, go to their site and click on schedule. And rather than actually have a link to the schedule, which they do have for the preliminary games, it's just a note about the NWSL Challenge Cup. So it's, you know, the information here is not as easy to come by as it should be. All right. On that note, we are going to wrap things up. Uh, next week, hopefully, we'll do some uh, team-specific stuff as it pertains to the NWSL Challenge Cup. But thanks to Rachel for jumping back on with us. And John Halloran, my name is Dan Lawletta. Thanks for listening to the Equalizer Podcast.